0: Amen. This is God's word. The city of Jericho is over 800 feet below sea level. So think about that, below sea level. That means it is the lowest city in the world. And Jerusalem, which is just 18 miles away, is 2,500 feet above sea level. So if you're walking from one to the other, it is steep and exhausting in the hot Middle Eastern sun. But that did not put off the pilgrims who went there every year and were on their way to Jerusalem, the center of their faith, their spiritual epicenter. And they were singing songs. There's some songs called the Psalms of Ascent. Ascent means going up. And they're walking up and singing the songs. And there's a wonderful carnival atmosphere among these pilgrims, partying, whole families, going on the the journey. And and as they rise, they see the wonderful view across the country. And Jesus, on this occasion, is in the middle of a happy crowd of pilgrims. And uh, he's enjoying it and he's with the people and, and everyone's loving it. And then a couple of miles out, he sends his disciples on a, a curious mission. He will ride into Jerusalem, this time on a borrowed colt. And he rides in also on a surge of popular appeal. After three years of constantly dampening. Enthusiasm so that he can keep operating. Three years of constantly being discreet and saying, Shh, don't tell anyone I healed you. Three years to, to trying to avoid a mass uprising. He now does the one thing calculated to get the most attention. And it works, of course. The disciples lead the way and the people go wild. This is what they've been waiting for. He enters into Jerusalem like a conquering king and not just into the city gates he rides in majesty right to the temple it's the heart of the city, it's the center of the Jewish faith he strides into the massive structure but Jesus has not come to admire the white marble the enormous stones and the glittering gleaming gold in the sunshine Jesus has not come to take selfies Nor has he come to offer prayers quietly as a devout pilgrim. He has come to inspect the temple. And he is not impressed with what he finds. After inspecting the empty temple on Sunday night, he returns on Monday morning with a whip. It disrupts every aspect of the temple's core business. He breaks the supply chain. He denounces their religious practices like a ferocious old-time prophet the owner of the house has come home and he's rearranging the furniture. Now in the Gospel of Mark, this account of the temple is sandwiched carefully in the middle of a very strange story. It is the only negative miracle, the cursing of a fruitless fig tree. I wonder what you thought when Scott read that. And as with the other sandwiches in Mark's Gospel, and Mark is deliberately putting things together so that the two elements help to interpret each other. And let me just, if you're new or if you, you uh, have forgotten, let me just remind you what a sandwich is in Mark. Mark begins a story, that's like the bread, then he interrupts the story with the filling, then he finishes the first story with the other slice of bread. So you have a sandwich, and often the bits on the outside are interpreting what's going on in the middle. So that's a sandwich, and we've seen some of these already, and this is... The weirdest one, because Jesus goes and curses a tre- an innocent tree. Completely blasts, verbally blasts it, and then when they come back, find it really was blasted because it's totally withered. What is going on here? This whole section is so full of drama. And it's also rich with insight into Jesus, who he is, and his mission, and what it means for us to follow him. And it has so many things to teach us about the Christian life. It's very practical, actually. And the main point of this passage, I think, can be summed up in a simple sentence. True majesty calls for true devotion. True majesty calls for true devotion. True majesty calls for true devotion. So my first point is true majesty, verses 1 to 11. And here we have this curious incident of the disciples uh, and the cult. As they approach Jerusalem, verse 1, they come to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sends two disciples and gives them these instructions. You know, go to this village, and when you enter it, you'll find a cult there, and, and untie it. But if anybody stops you, tell them this, and then they'll let you bring it, and so on and so forth. What's going on? It's often assumed, I think, that something supernatural is going on here, that Jesus is going to override the owner's mind with divine authority like a Jedi mind control. This is the cult he is looking for. You can go on their way. Now it's just as likely, actually, that Jesus uh, has made an arrangement in advance. It's quite plausible that there's a disciple or someone on their way to being a disciple who lives in a village near the Mount of Olives, and this is a pre-arranged signal. The Lord needs it and will send it back shortly. And in verse 6. If you've closed your Bible, please turn back to it, page 1016. Verse 6, they answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. So the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back shortly. That's almost like a code language, and they take this cult. And Jesus gets on it, and, and things really begin to kick off. Because what ne- happens next is really spectacular. Um, the pilgrims know that they're on the, the end of the journey. So there's there's kind of anticipation in the air, celebration. And they round the corner and they see Jerusalem, their their much-loved city, gleaming in the distance. And now they see, here is Jesus, who normally walks, riding on a colt. So he has the dignity and the mode of transport of a visiting king or a prophet. And people start throwing their cloaks on the dusty ground in front and cheering. And some of them ran over to the palm trees and they cut down the big palm fronds and they, f- they throw them uh, on, the- make it like a green carpet and people are going into the fields and cutting foliage and they're waving it like banners just as other people had done centuries before at the coronation of a king. An Israelite king's coronation would involve just this behavior. And the crowd swells because word's getting out, and now they're shouting, "Hosanna, Hosanna," which means save. And they quote the words of Psalm 118: "Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Blessed. This, this is politically loaded, by the way. You spot this. Blessed is the coming kingdom. Of our father David. Everybody knows that they think Jesus is coming as a king. So what on earth is Jesus doing here? This is an acted parable. One scholar calls it political street theater. Everybody who knows their Bible knows what's going on here. He's coming in like a king. He's being greeted like he's being crowned. Because they know the words of the prophet Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9.9 says this, rejoice, rejoice. Daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There it is. He's enacting that. Jesus is making a statement. The king is here. He's come home. And he is no ordinary king. There's no one like him. The very next verse in Zechariah 9 proclaims that this will be the final king, the one we've been waiting for, God's king, the Messiah, the one who will set the world to rights. This is what Zechariah says. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. You won't need weapons anymore. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Riding in on a colt is a message. It's a message to the city leaders, to the people, and to everyone who will pay attention. The king has come home. Now notice two things here that combine together in the most remarkable way. An extraordinary mixture in Jesus of absolute authority and complete humility, absolute authority. He commands, and they bring it. He rides in, assuming all of the pomp and ceremony of a king, and people gladly give it to him. He is the ruler, the one being crowned, but also complete humility. Jesus comes in on a little donkey. No one's ever ridden it before. That's Jesus Christ. In him, we see a a, a unique combination of meekness, and majesty he's the servant king he embodies what he's been teaching in the last two chapters about greatness and service the greatest of all is the slave of all remember that the son of man has not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many a great king what kind of king he comes not on a war horse or an armored chariot the colt is so young no one has yet ridden it Matthew's version The Gospel of Matthew adds adds the word humble. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Imagine that. We're probably going to have a coronation here in a few years, aren't we? Her Majesty can't live forever. Well, she's done very well. We're going to have a coronation. Imagine if the prince who will be crowned king of England, rides up on a moped (laughs) that no one's ever ridden before. (laughs) This image speaks a powerful word about the nature of Jesus' kingship. And there are four words here that I just want to dwell on for a few minutes and they really are mind-blowing. They're four words from verse 3. The Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. One of the great preachers of the 19th century he was a Scotsman called Alexander McLaren he ministered in the city of Manchester for 50 years Alexander McLaren's sermons were published and went all around the world people copied them all around the world and here's what he said about this phrase the Lord needs it the Lord that is a great title needs it that is a strange verb to go with that title But this little sentence, with its two halves of authority and dependence, put into four words the whole blessed paradox of the life of our Lord Jesus. The Lord needs it. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And being the Lord and owner of all things, yet he owed his daily bread to ministering women. He borrowed a boat to preach from. He borrowed a house to lay his head. He borrowed a shroud and a winding sheet to enfold his corpse. He borrowed a grave in which to die and from which to rise. The Lord of the dead and the living, the Lord needs it. And still he does. And so, Christian friend, I want to just push this a little bit. Uh, And this is really, I think, quite stunning to think about this. The Lord needs you. So three things come out of this. Firstly, he is the Lord, the King. King's church, Jesus Christ is our King. A King is not an elected uh, prime minister who can be voted out. A King is a King. He has absolute rule over us. Jesus isn't running a democracy. And what a King he is. Just think of the implications of his majesty, the one who rules Heaven and earth, and the Bible says, keeps all things sustained by his powerful word, who rules time and space. Hilary Mantle, who's an English novelist, described how she attended an evening party at Buckingham Palace. And she was in the room when the queen walked in. And she said, I expected to see people pushing themselves into the queen's path to try and meet her. But the opposite was true. The queen walked through the reception area at an even pace, hoping to meet someone, and you would see a set of guests, as if swept by the tide, parting before her and going into the next room. Everyone was scared of meeting the queen. They acted as if they feared excruciating embarrassment, should they be caught and obliged to chat. The self-possessed people became gauche, and the eloquent were struck dumb. The guests studied the walls, the floor, and anything else that they could look at except at Her Majesty. They studied exhibits in glass cases and paintings on the walls, which of course were worth looking at, but they studied them with great intentness as if their eyes were glued on them. Nobody wanted to look at the Queen. And that's just the Queen of England. What about the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings? You know, the Queen of England looks just like you in her PJs. Maybe not exactly. The Lord of all, the King of kings. If he's the king, then there's nothing he cannot ask of you. The king, the Lord. But secondly, he needs it. He needs your donkey. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, has to borrow a donkey. (laughs) Jesus humbled himself to such a great extent that he only owned the clothes he was walking around in, which they gambled for at the cross. He was actually homeless for a time. He said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was the pauper king, the homeless king. Now, this must mean that he chose that life. It wasn't forced upon him. And we must never forget this aspect of our Lord's kingship. He was a poor king, and he loves the poor. He relied on the help of others. Jesus was on benefits. He still does rely on the help of others. I know that sounds a little bit controversial. But this is a breathtaking thought. If you are a Christian, Jesus Christ, in some sense, needs you. Not in a dependent, needy way. He doesn't need you like that. But in the quiet dignity of the truly great one who was chosen to extend his kingdom through the humblest means, you and me. This means that the message of Jesus Christ will only be carried into the furthest corners of the world and into Sweden if ordinary little donkeys like you and me carry the message. Jesus doesn't send glorious angels with the word of the gospel. He sends ordinary people like us. It means that the kingdom of Jesus will only be extended if you choose to live in obedient faith right here in Chesington or where you work and to pursue a holy life that makes you shine like a star in a dark world. It's the only way the kingdom will be extended. It means that the church of Jesus Christ around the world will only be built if you're prepared to sacrifice your time, your talents, and your hard-earned cash to build it. Jesus still relies on humble means. The Lord needs it. But finally, notice, sorry, if not finally, end of the sermon, finally, first point. <laughs> Clarification. <laughs> Thirdly, notice that he is no one's debtor. Verse 3 says, he will send it back here shortly and that is so countercultural in the ancient world kings and rulers could seize and grab and command and commandeer anything that they wanted they wa- and they wouldn't have to say please and they wouldn't have to say thank you and they wouldn't have to send a thank you card or return it later how caesar in his marble palace in rome would have sneered at this jewish joiner riding on a colt which he promised to send back how humble Here's the point. You never give anything in your life to Jesus and then feel you've been shortchanged. Amen? You never give anything in your life to Jesus and feel you, you came out of the deal worse. When you give to Jesus, when you give him your time, when you give him your money, when you give him your life, you come away much, much richer than ever before. Amen? The owner of the colt got it back. And perhaps he spent the rest of his days saying, you see that donkey? That's the one. That's the one Jesus rode into Jerusalem on when he was being crowned in glory. No, it's not for sale. Jesus Christ is no man's debtor. So let's just pause for a moment and ask, do you sense in this holy place the call of Jesus on you on your life today, to surrender something. We ask him to show you, right now. Lord, what do you want, need from me? Think about the week ahead, and where that cult is that you've got, that you can use in the service of Jesus. It might be to surrender money. Now this is an interesting church financially It's very different from the church we served in Manchester. In Manchester, we were always going bust. The church finances used to be plotted like a ski slope. And they used to talk about the go bust date. We eventually stopped that language. But church plants are forever running out of money. This is why Ben and Emily, after three years, now have to start again. Because church plants don't get financially viable for a long time. In Europe, it's a different story in America. But some will have to surrender money. In generous and costly giving to sustain ministries, is that you? Some will have to surrender their comfort in costly service. Serving other people is costly, emotionally, time-wise, in all sorts of ways it's costly to serve others. Some will have to surrender their independence and begin for the first time to trust Jesus Christ and follow him in faith and let him be your king. The Lord needs it, and he will send it back here shortly. What a king. Such majesty makes compelling demands on us and our lives. And that leads to my second and final point, true devotion. True majesty calls for true devotion. Look at verse 12 through to 25. You see, if we um, understand who Jesus is, then everything about us is going to change. And that's why Christianity is so much more than just a religion. It's a civilization it's a kingdom. Jesus doesn't come into your life and ask you to tidy yourself up a bit, stop swearing drink a bit less, say your prayers and go to church on Sunday morning and if you have time comb your hair. You know, Jesus is asking for a lot more than that. No, no Jesus comes into your life as the Lord of all and he has the right to rearrange all the furniture in your life. He's the Lord of all or not at all. And the reason why some of you friends find Christianity so difficult and challenging is that you just basically don't want him to be lord. That's too much. You sort of want Jesus. That's why you're here today. But you don't really want to let him take charge and get hold of the steering wheel. You're still gripping onto it. You want some help from Jesus with certain problems. You know? There's certain things that you, you, you really would like some divine help with. And maybe you enjoy the warmth and the friendship of Christian community. But is he Lord of your life? No way. He's still basically an executive assistant. Young people, I'm looking over there dimly because I can't see through these glasses. You are faced with, a, a, especially if you're a young person from a Christian family in this church you're in spiritually quite a dangerous position because you've grown up hearing all this stuff about Jesus all these years and it can become so familiar that you treat it with contempt. It just washes over you. You might even be playing on your phone right now. And there comes a point in life, maybe you're facing it now, where you have to choose who am I going to serve? Jesus Christ is my king or me? And this way looks really attractive because of what all your friends are doing. You can be in the in crowd and you can go and get drunk and sleep with people and all the rest of it. Let me tell you, that route is absolutely bankrupt and empty. Everybody here who's been down that route can tell you if you had the sense to listen. There's only one way that will bring life, which is to take the king as your king. Anything else doesn't work. If he's the king, then he deserves total devotion. And that's what this whole section about the fig tree in the temple is. That's, but it's really baffling at first, isn't it? Uh, the fig tree. Jesus comes. Have a look at it again. Where are we? Verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Why? Because it wasn't the season for figs. That's a pretty harsh bit of gardening that happens next, isn't it? Now he knows it's not the season. It's got leaves all over it. So he says, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him saying, Why does he do this to this poor tree? Look at the, the end of the sandwich. Um, <clears throat> verse, I can't even find it. Verse 20. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It's the only negative miracle. And what this is doing is showing us about the temple. Jesus wasn't just having a bad day. He was teaching them about the temple because the temple was supposed to be like the tree and give fruit, but it was fruitless, and so he, he blasts it. That's what the sandwich is about. Now, what is this about the temple? Stay with me now. I'm going to talk to you about the temple, which might seem remote, but it's a key theme through the whole Bible. And once you get this, I think it will put a lot into context, including what it means to be a Christian, because now we are God's temple, the place where he dwells. We need to understand the function of the temple in the Bible. In the beginning... In Genesis, right back, page one, page two, page three of your Bible, God created a sanctuary. It was a beautiful place where humankind could live in the presence of God and flourish. It's called the Garden of Eden. It was a place of perfect peace, perfect harmony, full provision, fulfillment. It was actually described in language and imagery of a temple. So it was a temple garden. Very important to notice that. But because of their high treason, their rebellion, their disgraceful betrayal of their king, sin, humankind were banished from that garden sanctuary and excluded from the presence of God. The way back was guarded with a sword, showing that there's now a death penalty. There is no way back to the garden. The gates are locked. And a profound alienation from God occurred with our first parents. That alienation from God is the root of all your problems. Social, relational, psychological, internally, and also environmental, the way that we treat the planet. All of these things flow from the fact that our relationship with our maker is broken. We're alienated. Yet God reached out to people in mercy. He didn't have to do it. He made it possible for them to meet him again, but on a highly restricted and safe basis. Safe for them, because it's, it, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you are a sinner, you are flammable in God's presence, and you will be just burned up because of who God is. And we're all sinners. And so it's like we're soaked in kerosene, and we're going near a naked flame. When God appears to Moses in a burning bush, you don't want to get too near to that burning bush if you've spilled a load of petrol in your clothes, do you? God makes it safe. So first of all, he does it in a moving sanctuary. Again, it's like, the, it's like Eden, and it's in the wilderness. And it's called a tabernacle. It's a moving, you could pack it up and move it. It was a beautiful, beautiful tent, all lovely gold braid and, and, and garden imagery in it. And it was possible to meet God there, very, very restricted, very, very safe. And then later on, they were given instructions for how to build a a concrete, not concrete, a stone temple. And and they built the temple in the days of King Solomon. And Solomon's temple was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Absolutely glorious building. Uh, But whether tent or temple, the rituals were always the same. It was very, very restricted. You couldn't just wander in. You had to wash, which showed you and reminded you that you're not clean. You had to bring an offering. If you're really poor, you might have a couple of pigeons or doves. And if you're really, really rich, you might have a bull. And depending on where you are financially, you're somewhere between them, different levels of animal. But you bring your offering and you, you make your offering and you come near. But you don't go into God's presence. No, no, no. Nobody goes in there. There's one place in the middle of the temple that nobody goes in and it's a perfect cube. And on the inside of it, it's covered in gold. So if you were to go in, it would be like shining gold all around you, like you were standing in heaven itself, which is an image of what it was, because God's presence was said to dwell in that cubic space in a special way on this planet, and he never has anywhere else. It was called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and only one person could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, and he would have a thing around his waist that, and ropes at the back in case he died in there because no one could go in to get him out. They'd have to pull the body out. This is the imagery of the temple, friends. It is a beautiful place. It is a highly restrictive place. And it is a place of great wonder and, and, and longing because God wants to be near us. But it's not safe for us. So that's the temple. You, you're getting this kind of vibe from the, the, the whole Bible. Now because of people's sin, the people's sin again and their constant disobedience, Solomon's temple was destroyed. And they were sent away to the east in exile to Babylon and there they wept by the river as they remembered Zion. But still hope remained. God promised graciously to preserve a remnant of people and they returned to the land to rebuild the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. They returned with high hopes. They were buoyed by the words of a great prophet, Ezekiel. Ezekiel told a vision about a future temple that would be full of God's glory. It would be so large that the nations of the world would come to it. And out of Ezekiel's temple flowed, this vision, flowed rivers of water. And this, is, get this, the rivers are flowing uphill, filling the world with water and, and life. So they set to work, and after much striving, they completed. And on the day the new foundation was laid, The older members of the community wept when they saw what they'd built. They remembered the former structure. The new one looked so small. And this was the temple that existed in Jesus' day, much enlarged by King Herod. It's called the second temple. But it's still the hope of the nation and the center of Judaism. Jesus comes into the temple, look, verse 15 he entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of money changers and benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house, my house will be called a house of prayer But for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. What is he doing? Jesus cursed the fig tree because it had leaves, so it looked good, but it had no fruit. That's false advertising. It has the appearance of being fruitful, but it's all show. It's really fruitless and useless. And now he goes into the temple, and there's all sorts of activity, all sorts of religious activity. But there's no true piety. There's no true love for God. Seen in three things. Firstly, there's commercialism, but not prayer. The decision to trade there. So they've set up shop to sell doves and change money, because people are coming from all over the world, they need to change their money to the shekel. And they need to buy their sacrifice animals to sacrifice, because you can't bring your dove if you're travelling from Egypt. So they're doing it. But they decided to do it in the court of the Gentiles, which is a place the non-Jews could go. This is supposed to be a place of prayer, but it's become a place of pragmatism. Secondly, they've done it in the court of the Gentiles. These are the non-Jews. This is their only place they can go to pray and try and find God. Their only space is now filled with traders. And these people's response to Jesus show that they are not devoted to God. They really worship other things. Their religion is fake. What about us? You've made it here on a Sunday morning. You've sung some songs. We've heard an interview. You're here, okay? What about your life? Are you really here to worship or just to go through the motions? Jesus is not impressed with people showing up to a building and sitting through a service. He wants your heart. And as a result of that, their temple came to an end. The fig tree shows us Judgment falls. It's withered from the roots, never to be used again. That's why Jesus here disrupts the entire process to put an end to it. He's not cleansing the temple. He's dis- declaring it obsolete. He's clearing it. And what does that mean for humanity? Does that mean now there's nowhere where you can go and find God? That God has moved out and said, stuff you, I'm going, I'm going back to heaven, you know, there's no chance for you. No, it means something actually really incredible There's a new day here. A new order is here. And now God comes and dwells in his church as the temple. Wherever the people of God are, there is his presence. The Holy Spirit is here now. indwelling us because we're the temple. So people don't need to go to Jerusalem anymore to a building there. They can come to a sports hall in Chesington. Because the temple is here because of the people. An extraordinary thing. And, and these final sayings in verses 22 to 25 show us what it's like to be part of his kingdom. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and doesn't doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now the new people of God live their lives based on faith in God. This faith can overcome insurmountable odds. It's not that our faith moves mountains. I've got such big faith I can move mountains. It's that the faith of these disciples can move the temple mountain. And that will go into the heart of the sea. And out of its ruins will come the International Church of Jesus Christ. And those people will be people of prayer. You ask, he says, whatever you ask, Believe you received it and it will be yours. Of course, it's only when we ask according to his will. If you ask according to his will and it's in his will, then it will be done. Jesus is handing us the keys and saying, pray. He is the temple and we are his body. What does this mean for us this week? Let me just talk to you about prayer for a moment. What is, what is your prayer life like It's really, really easy for preachers to make a congregation feel guilty about prayer. It's like a gift horse. (laughs) If I wanted to make you feel guilty, I'm not doing that. We're not doing that. We've got to learn to enjoy prayer. We've got to learn to just sit with Jesus in prayer and actually to be silent for a while. We've got to, it's not about us and, and looking at yourself oh I'm such, a poor, I'm such a terrible prayer forget about yourself prayer isn't about you it's about the king and if you see this king, this true majesty of Jesus calling forth from you true devotion then your prayers will be transformed think about who you're praying to he wants to know everything about you he already does know everything about you He wants to hear from you like a good father hearing a little child prattling on about their day and what they made out of Play-Doh. Jesus wants to hear you because he loves you. And he needs you. The Lord needs this cult. So let's, this week, think about how true majesty calls forth true devotion in our lives. The story is told of a little cult One day, he woke with a smile on his face. He'd been dreaming about the previous day. He got up, and he happily walked out into the street. But many passers-by simply ignored him. Confused, he went to the crowded market area. With his ears held high with pride, he swaggered right down to the middle. Here I am, people, he said to himself. But they stared in confusion, and some struck him away. What do you think you're doing, you ass, walking into the marketplace like this? Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Hurt and confused, the colt returned home to his mother. I don't understand, he said to her. Yesterday they waved palm branches at me. They shouted, Hosanna! Hallelujah! Today they treat me like I'm a nobody. Foolish child, she said gently, don't you realize that without him you can do nothing? Let's pray. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Lord Jesus Christ, we bring you our lives again today. And we ask now that you would fill us to the brim with your Holy Spirit. That you would cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. That we would take up our cross and follow you that we would learn what it means this week to live in your presence and please you more and more, that you would call forth from us true devotion. Amen.